Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. Happy Monday, everyone. Good morning, good evening. Wherever you are watching me, I want to say thank you for watching today. And I am Krista Bontrager. I am a theologian and Christian apologist. And this is the channel where I bring you teaching about the Bible as well as social commentary through a theological lens. And I am continuing to bring you content to help give you a biblical perspective on the events happening in the Middle East as we journey through these choppy waters together. I will continue to release content in the coming weeks along these lines as I attempt to cover the events happening in Israel from a variety of angles. If you haven't yet done so, you can catch previous conversations on my channel um, and you can see all of that just by going to Theology Mom, wherever you stream your podcasts. Now, just a few weeks ago, many of us saw Hamas in real time capturing and torturing civilians, including the elderly, raping women, killing babies. And now the state of Israel is engaged in a war against Hamas. One of the first things I did in the days after the war began was reach out to my friend Laura Powell and ask her to help me a little bit more with my understanding about Islam. And I'll admit, I don't comment a lot on the channel about Islam because I know when I am out of my lane, like this is something that I do not have expertise in, but I rely on others and I can go watch YouTube videos. I can take initiative to do my own research with reliable voices and, and try to figure some things out. But in particular, I wanted to ask Laura to come on the show and maybe help me understand a little bit more about the true position, helping us differentiate between facts and myths when it comes to what Islam believes related to violence. So often I hear things like Islam is a religion of peace, but then I see things like Hamas, um, I hear about them killing babies and raping women, and I'm confused. I don't know if you're confused, too. I'm confused. Um, so I asked Laura to come on, who has a little bit more in-depth knowledge about Islam to help me understand this particular aspect of the Islamic faith. Now, neither of us claims to be an expert on the politics of Hamas or Israel, so we're not going to be discussing those issues but we will be trying to tackle general questions about Islam and, again, trying to differentiate between facts and myths about whether Islam is a religion of violence or of peace. And with that, I'd like to welcome my friend Laura Powell back to the Theology Mom podcast. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much. It's great to be here again with you. Yeah. Now, for those who aren't familiar, you did a program with Monique and I on all the things a couple of years ago, just kind of some basics about outreach to our Muslim friends. We're going to be digging deeper into some a particular issue. But for those who aren't familiar with you, maybe just give us like the two minute 
introduction of yourself and how you came to be interested in studying Islam. Sure. Let's see. I serve as the Islam ministry specialist with Women in Apologetics. I uh, became a follower of Jesus when I was 21 um, in a in an environment where that was not cool. <laughs> it was there was uh, a cost to pay, and I just I became immediately passionate about sharing with people um, my this worldview that had transformed my life and the reasons for the hope that I have. And really, my involvement with Islam and with Muslims um, was not something that I particularly sought myself. But um, what happened was I was asked to do kind of one thing at a time, uh, beginning with um, as I was serving with Engineering Ministries International as their training and member care consultant, I was asked to train up a team to, uh, to move to the Middle East. And so I began studying Islam. I began. I I spent some time in Egypt and Jordan, um, et cetera. And I was teaching, training this group of people um, in what I was learning. Kind of as we went, I took some courses. I, I started reading the Quran and the Hadith. Um, then I was asked to go to Afghanistan um, uh, to minister to Westerners and to Afghani women. I spent time in Lesbos, Greece during the refugee crisis of 2014 and 15, where, um, and as, as Muslims were coming in droves um, from down to Turkey and across over to Greece. I ministered to Muslims in uh, the refugee community of Clarkston, Georgia for years and taught about Islam in local churches where I lived. I, I kind of saw each of those as kind of an individual assignment or calling, that sort of thing. And then I was asked to join Women in Apologetics as their Islam ministry specialist. And my response was kind of, uh, seriously, Islam again? <laughs> okay, okay. But I, I do recognize now at this point, you know, I have 15 years plus, maybe going on 20 now, of uh, kind of unique experience personal experience in ministry to Muslims, uh, but as well as the book learning. So it's something I'm I'm embracing. <laughs> Sometimes uh, our calling finds us. Right. <laughs> I, I don't think I ever would have imagined that I would co-found a ministry related to race and justice. That wasn't on my bingo card of things to do in my life, but that sort of was the calling that found me. I can kind of relate to that. So Right, right. Um, well, we do appreciate you sharing your expertise because, like I said in my opening, this is something that is a bit more foreign to me. And mm -hmm. so I don't like jumping behind a microphone and acting like I'm an expert. I would rather get somebody on and have the conversation. Maybe we should start by differentiating between loving Muslim people that we might know that are our neighbors or on our kids' soccer team, and the discussion we're going to have about their religious beliefs. Because um, our purpose here is not in any way to dehumanize or demean Muslims. We want to love the Muslims in our lives. We want to acknowledge also at the same time that we have very real differences in belief systems. So maybe you could offer some comment along those lines. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction. I mean, first of all, 
as with any uh, religious system or worldview, the ideas, the worldview may be absolutely terrible. And, uh, they may need to be uh, destroyed <laughs> using kind of the, the translation of uh, a passage from Paul. They, they need to be um, demolished uh, with evidence and arguments. Uh, they may the, the worldview may even be demonic in, in origin, but uh, that is the worldview. Those are the ideas, those are the beliefs. God, uh, the, the people, in contrast, are God's image bearers. Uh, I, I do think it's important to make a distinction between image bearers versus our brothers and sisters uh, because uh, uh, we are grafted into the family of God. Uh, when we become Christians, and so it's not uh, it's not theologically accurate to talk about Muslims as our brothers and sisters um, in faith, but uh, but they are nonetheless God's image bearers, and so they have inherent value, dignity, and worth. Um, they they are enslaved to false ideas, but they need to be given a chance to be set free uh, by by hearing the truth, and this is my motivation for speaking the truth. I, I often hear back from people, not so much anymore, but uh, at, at first, especially when I started sharing the truth about Islam, uh, Westerners would get really upset with me and say, you Muslim hater, you Islamophobe, these sorts of things. That that was not my heart at all, nor is it today. I um, have Muslim friends who are like family to me who um, I, I would do just about anything for, and likewise, they for me. And so I want them to know the truth. And uh, some of them have come to know the truth, and it's just the greatest joy in my heart. Uh, secondly, a lot, of, um, a lot of Muslims are only Muslims because Islam is central to their culture, to their community, to their family. They're cultural Muslims, just like a lot of people who claim to be Christians are just cultural Christians. Uh, they may not know their scriptures. Uh, they they don't may may have no idea what the scriptures teach or or um, have a comprehensive worldview that matches with the teachings. But they will claim you know a certain religion because of their community, and so um, so you know most Muslims actually believe whatever their local leaders tell them. And um, I think we'll talk a little bit more about why that is later, but. Um, but their beliefs can can differ quite drastically depending on the community they're a part of. In fact, one time an imam I met with told me that it was when I, I went to him and I was talking to him about the violence in Islam and the life of Muhammad and the and the uh, commands in the Quran, and uh, and he said, "Oh, I'm so glad you came. I'm so glad you you came to this mosque. I'm glad you found me." Because if you had gone to the mosque down the street, either direction, you would be hearing something drastically different, and they would be telling you, "Yes, we, you know, we're." Uh, anyway, we'll get into that to, to that topic more. But uh, just to say, there is a difference between the teachings, which I think we're primarily going to talk about, yeah. versus the people. That's so good, and so we want to again come at this from you know that posture of. I don't want to allow a conversation about disagreements with belief to plant seeds in my heart that so distance me from Muslims in my community that I don't reach out to them with the power of the gospel and the real Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a great place to start. I'm going to show a short video to get our conversation started here. 
It happened a couple of weeks ago. It was right after the start of the war in Israel. And there was, it ha- shows a, a Muslim man standing up. And I would call it, it's kind of like open air preaching, but from a Muslim point of view. And really talking about um, the idea that he thinks the intention of Islam is that the whole world will worship Allah and that that is kind of where he wants things to go. So we're going to watch this short video. It's just about a minute. There's captions uh, for people. So Bob's going to play that now. We're done being tortured and hurt and judged. This is the correct religion. This is the religion that all of humanity needs to be a part of Islam. And we will not stop until it enters every home. So I want you to repeat after me. I want to hear it in every single district. It should tremble. Brooklyn should hear it. The Bronx should hear it. Queens should hear it. Say it as if the Ummah depends on this, my brothers and sisters. except Allah, the God of Jesus, the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, and the God of the last and final prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And once again, that was in New York City. So that wasn't broadcast from Afghanistan or uh, anywhere in the Middle East. That was New York City. So, Lauren, when you watch something like this, what do you hear? Uh, because it, what immediately struck me is like, wait a minute, it kind of sounds like he wants everyone to be a Muslim. Like, I'm not sure where that leaves me as a Christian. Um, is, is, is it the goal of Islam big picture to make everyone a Muslim? It is, yes. And I, I think that um, you phrased that really well, to make um, everyone, a Muslim, not to offer um, the opportunity, not to share the good news, not not to um, persuade, not to persuade, not to make sure everyone has heard, but to make the um, the entire world uh, Muslim, um, or at at a minimum to to um, uh, make sure that Islam rules the world that it has conquered the world and that anybody who remains who may not be a muslim um would need to know that they are second class citizens they don't get any good job they're allowed to you know sweep the streets um uh they're allowed to be slaves but they um uh and they they but they have to even give their income a good portion of their income to muslims to be allowed to live um so what I hear, you ask, you know, what do I hear? Um, he is what I hear him saying, based on what I know from Islam. He is saying it's time for Muslims to rise up and conquer the world for Islam. He's saying he's done waiting. He is ready for Islam to take over by force now. He's he's essentially telling Muslims to begin their attacks against non-Muslims. Um, he says it will not stop until it enters every home. Again, he, he doesn't say, you know, we won't stop until everyone has heard the good news or anything like that. It's not It's not just a matter of semantics. It, that's very intentional. Um, there is a distinct difference. He says we're done being tortured and hurt and judged, right? You caught that. So 
So my, you know, when I first heard that, um, uh, I, I thought to myself, you know, if I didn't know Islam, I would think, wow, Muslims in New York City are being tortured? Really? How come I haven't heard about this? Well, the answer is, for the most part, no. No, Muslims are not being tortured in New York City, at least not according to any reasonable definition of the word tortured. But this is actually a tactic that Muhammad used. He would exaggerate his claims against his enemies and not even just exaggerate, but he would straight up lie in order to make himself look like a victim and to make others look and sound evil to justify his um, aggressive attacks against them. So, uh, now, for example, uh, he he referred to those who didn't accept him as the final prophet of Islam and Christianity as being people who made mischief in the land, as people who persecuted Muslims, as people who caused them great distress, as um, a, a, and then uh, he would play this this role of the ultimate victim that someone just because they didn't accept his message, you know, had had therefore persecuted him. Um, uh, had had caused him tremendous distress, and uh, um, and and had um, and warranted being attacked. So everyone who didn't praise him and celebrate him uh, and follow him was a persecutor of Islam and of Muhammad. And these persecutors, these torturers, these troublemakers, need to be violently attacked and subjugated. Um, they they and they need to be violently attacked and subjugated now um, until Islam rules over the entire world. So big picture, that that video almost sounds like it's a good summary of, you know, what the strategy here is. But I guess I want to go deeper into some things that you said there, because is it true that Islam really teaches coercion? or conversion by coercion? Like, is that true? Because I hear conflicting things. Is it possible that some of these passages have been taken out of context? Sometimes when I hear atheists talk about what we Christians believe, I think, I don't believe that. That's not true. And so I'm wondering, like, is it really true? Or is that that Islam teaches conversion by coercion? Or is that just like one strain of Islam or, you know, help me make sense of that? Yeah, let me uh, tell you a few things that um, the Quran teaches first and then okay. address, I'll address the context question after that. So let me give you a few examples. So uh, Quran uh, 929 says, um, fight those who believe not in Allah nor in the last day nor hold that forbidden which hath uh, been forbidden by Allah in his messenger. Uh, and uh, so it um, it's saying, go fight people who disagree with you. Go fight those who don't believe that Allah is the one and only God and that his messenger, Muhammad, is uh, a true prophet. It's a, it says to fight them until they pay the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. Oh, jizya was a tax uh, for being a non-Muslim and being allowed to live um, under Muslim rule. And there's a there's a long story that that goes back to that actually involves the Jews 
where Muhammad attacked a, a town that didn't even know they had any enemies. They didn't know they were at war. They were unarmed. Muhammad and his men attacked them. The men, um, uh, so the Muslims won, obviously. <laughs> um, people weren't even expecting their attack, weren't armed and all of that. And then, but then there were, a, then after the Muslims had had conquered the town and, and killed most of the people, there were a few remaining who said, wait, 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 what if I give you half of my earnings um, my family and I have been here for for generations. And what if I just give you fifty percent of my produce? Will you let me uh, stay here without being a Muslim? And Muhammad thought that sounded like a pretty good idea. So that is offered, and but it says and feel themselves subdued. So th again, they these are they're um, they have to know that they are second class citizens. They don't get the good jobs. They don't get the good education. They don't count as full human beings. Uh, so the, the the Quran also says in um, chapter 9, verse 5, when the sacred months have passed, then kill the polytheists wherever you find them and capture them and besiege them and sit and wait for them at every place of ambush. But if they should repent, establish prayer and give uh, zakah, the, the same, this uh, like tax money, uh, then let them go on their way. So again, it, it's it's about belief. If they are polytheists, if they don't believe this message of one and only God, and by the way, um, by the time chapter nine was revealed, Muhammad was convinced that um, uh, that Christians were were polytheists um, because of the Trinity. I was going to ask about that. Is like, did they would they consider us as Christians to be polytheists, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Well, they would. That we believe in three gods or something. Yeah, they, they think we believe in three gods because of the Trinity. But Muhammad had a lot of misunderstandings about Christianity, That which um, it's kind of an entertaining religion to some degree to, to read about what he thought about Christianity um, or what Allah thought about Christianity. But he believed that the, the Trinity was Father, Son, and Mary. So he, he um, kind of got that one wrong. But uh, but yes, we are polythe. You know, we're polytheists <clears throat> according to uh, Islam. Uh, Quran five thirty three says the punishment of those who wage war against Allah. Now keep in mind again, um, and this kind of has to do with context. Um, I'll, I'll explain that in a second because it really is kind of a, a diff kind of different question. But um, those who wage war against Allah are people who don't accept the message of Muhammad. Uh, he, he had this enormous victim mentality and would, would make people look so much worse than they are. So, so he, and he explained that clearly that, um, th so those who wage war, this is people who have not accepted, uh, Islam, uh, those who wage war against Allah and his apostle and strive to make mischief in the land is only this, that they should be murdered or crucified, or their hands and their feet should be cut off on opposite sides, or they should be imprisoned. This shall be as a disgrace for them in this world, and in the hereafter they shall have a grievous chastisement. That's Quran 533. Uh, Quran 8. Uh, so so just a second. So I would be considered as attacking Islam, even if I'm just passively living my life as a Christian, that's seen as an attack. Is, yes. is that what you're saying? Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. <clears throat> okay. And certainly, I mean, you become, 
you 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 more clearly wage war against Allah if you hear the message of Islam and you reject it. But okay. he he but in his actions he also showed that those the Jews who were just living their lives peacefully far away from him for the time, you know, uh, I mean far away in distance for the time without cars, you know. Uh, just living their lives, not even knowing about Islam, they need to, they needed to be conquered. Um, the the anybody who had a different worldview needed to be conquered and taken over. So, uh, but yes, certainly. I mean, if you reject the message of Islam, you are waging war against Allah, and you have got to go. Quran uh, eight twelve twelve and thirteen says, uh, uh, "Remember when the Lord inspired to the angels, saying, I am with you, so strengthen those who have believed.'" I will cast terror into the hearts of those who have disbelieved. Therefore, strike them upon the necks. You might remember some images if you've been watching the news. Strike them upon the necks and strike from them every fingertip. That is because they opposed Allah and his messenger. He's telling us why. Why do they need to have their heads uh, cut off with garden tools? Why do they need to have their fingers amputated? because they opposed Allah and his messenger. And whoever opposed Allah and his messenger, indeed Allah is severe in penalty. All right, so um, so those are some, those are just a few. But just, you know, I knew we didn't have all day. <laughs> so, no, I appreciate that. <laughs> You're bringing those receipts and, and reading them for us. And then, so then I guess we can migrate to the context issue of right. that might be a concern that my Muslim friend might say, well, that's being taken out of context or those passages are being hijacked by extremists like Hamas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. And I think it's a very, very fair question. Like you said, people uh, people do that with Christianity all the time. And the, there are a few um, responses that I think are worth noting. First of all, as you know, the Bible contains a lot of different genres. It contains historical narrative describing what happened, um, describing what people did, even when God did not endorse those things or allow those things, even when God had pro or prohibited those things. You know, it records David uh, committing adultery and then um, killing Bathsheba's husband, essentially, or making sure he was killed. Um, uh, but that doesn't, it's not a command to follow, of course, it's a historical narrative. There's poetry, there are books of wisdom, uh, there are parables. You have to consider what, what's going on with the parable. Um, is it A parable is not the same thing as every word within the parable being a command from God and things like this. Okay, so the Quran, on the other hand, is an eternal collection of commands and commands only, according to Islam, that Allah gave to, Mah to Muhammad through the angel Gabriel. So these were for Muhammad to give to his people. They had supposedly existed for all time, although yeah, we could have a whole conversation about um, uh, some, some Muhammad started contradicting himself. And so people asked him, well, what is it? Is it this or is it this? And he said, whatever comes later cancels out what, what came earlier. But, um, but uh, uh, without going into all of that, the, uh, the, the Quran is believed by Muslims to be a collection of eternal commands from Allah. Uh, so it's not as easy as, um, it's not as easy to extract these commands from their context because there really isn't any context 
and the Quran. They're more like they might. They're more like proverbs in that way. Like a proverb can usually stand alone, and you know what it's saying. You don't need to read the whole chapter, the whole book, to know what a verse says for the most part. And so it's kind of more like that. Um, uh, you can get the whole message without having to read um, all that's around it to understand it and know its genre and all that. There's one genre: commands from God, Allah. Um, so, but when we Talk like going back to your experience when you went to see the imam. He says, "Well, I'm so glad you came to me so I can explain these things to you." And it would be different if you went to the mosques down the street. Right. That to me kind of indicates that some people may see the way that Hamas and and other extremists interpret passages like this. Well, those are the extremists. That's just a a small fraction of of islam and you know maybe we might compare them to the westboro pap baptists you know that we're not like them that they don't represent us yeah yes well so he did he uh this particular imam that i referred to uh he he would he would say they don't represent us our congregation here um however he had nothing to stand on he talked in circles and so I'll, I'll kind of, kind of my next point will probably help to clarify that. So even though the the commands themselves don't really necessarily require context to to know what they're saying or what you're supposed to do, there is context out there that you can obtain by reading the most trusted collections of Muhammad's teachings and his actions. They're known as the hadith in Arabic, the ahadith. And um, these are these are again the teachings of Muhammad, the actions of Muhammad, from the most trusted, earliest sources uh, from within Islam. And so, these sources, um, and then also the the ancient biography, the most ancient, most tr trusted Islamic ancient biography of Muhammad as well. The problem is that when you um, read these sources, they actually reveal an even more, a far, far more disturbing picture of how Muslims are to behave when you learn more about the situations in which these commands were revealed. So, for example, when I read, um, you know, uh, go out and kill everybody who, who makes mischief in the land, you think, wow, that sounds really harsh and really scary. Uh, well, what's the context? Well, the context is that some, you know, that a few people rejected a lot of people rejected Muhammad's message, and that's considered making mischief in the land. So actually, the context makes it far, far more disturbing. Um, but so when I would ask this this particular imam about about the violence, he would say, "Well, uh, you know, we uh, I don't believe that that's for today." And there are some scholars who who would say it's you know none of that's for today. And then I would say, "Well, the the Quran says to follow the." the example of Muhammad in everything. He was the excellent pattern of conduct. You're to imitate him in everything. Uh, and he would say, um, uh, uh, and, I, and I would say, so, and then in order to know what he did and said, you have to go to the Hadith. And he would say, well, some scholars think the Hadith maybe say different things. And I would say, okay, well, let's look at some of the, you know, Hadith. I had brought pages and pages and pages, and I had emailed him actually, all of this before I came to, I would say, okay, let's look at this one. And he's like, oh, some scholars think it doesn't mean that. 
I said, well, what's their source? And he's like, the Hadith. I said, well, this is this is the Hadith on that verse. And he's like, yeah, but some scholars think that maybe, um, you know, it, it doesn't really mean that. I'm like, based on what? He's like, oh, Hadiths. I'm like, which Hadith? What? It's clear. <laughs> so he would just, we would just, he would talk in circles and that sort of thing. Whereas um, he, uh, when you, when you talk to people who, if I, when I talk to people who are more of like the, the people down the street from him and ask them what they are basing their beliefs on in believing that they're supposed to take over the world for Islam and, and decapitate people and cut off their hands and, and toes and, um, and rape the women and this and that, they will point to the most trusted sources, the most trusted hadith in all of Islam, and say, look, that's what Muhammad did. Look at the Quran. It says to do what Muhammad did. Uh, look at the Quran, even apart from the whole Muhammad thing, it says to go kill them. It's very, it's very clear and it's very evident. Whereas the the Imam I met with was like, yeah, there might be a hadith somewhere out there, so you know that that we don't really know about that indicates maybe there's something different. <laughs> he had nothing to stand on, and so I'm I'm thankful that there are Muslims out there who who you know who just listen to someone like this peaceful imam and say yeah that's good enough for me i mean i actually went to meet with him the first time or two with a good friend of mine who was a muslim and after we had discussed islam for a while she didn't want to talk about it with me anymore because she didn't have any answers and she said just don't bring up islam anymore i don't want to talk about it. i just want to be friends with you and i so a, a week or two later i went back to her and said would you be willing to talk to me about it if we went and met with your imam together instead of just you you and and I talking um because I know you, you know you don't know maybe as much of the about these things I'm bringing up she's like oh yeah great that's a great idea we you know that didn't take very long for her to decide that was a bad idea cuz he just had nothing to ground his peacefulness in so it could be that there are some muslims and even imams and 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 muslim leaders that are taking a peaceful approach, the question that I think you're raising is, is that consistent with the writings and the interpretations, the hadiths, that it it's almost like, well, we're peaceful Muslims, but you know, maybe there's not as solid of a of a foundation for that idea. Um, which is very perplexing to me, but let, let me let me ask you this question. So when it comes to the issue of human dignity, one of the things you have taught me is that the idea of human dignity is such a distinctly Christian idea. And that there are places in the world where the idea of the dignity of humans has not yet penetrated their cultural practices. And so you can walk around and there will be dead people in the streets and there will be not the kind of regard that we have for them. I mean, even the act of calling 911 or going to a hospital or having a proper burial, these are all things that we do every day in our culture because there is some deep rooting in that humans have dignity. Right. But- is that idea a pervasive idea in Islam? 
is there an understanding of it's wrong to con kill innocent people that the killing that their religion does not allow for the killing of women raping their women beheading children mutilating bodies that's just an unacceptable belief in islam because again i hear conflicting things i hear big name muslim apologists on youtube saying their religion does not allow that behavior. That is unacceptable. And then I hear other people say, oh, no, that's that's not an accurate summary of the Islamic position on human dignity. Is there anything you can speak to along those lines? Sure, yes. Well, first of all, there's no doctrine of the Imago Dei in uh, Islam. There's nothing like it. There's, there's no, um, I mean, people... Uh, Muslim apologists can can hit you know hit the record button and record themselves all day long saying uh, we're not supposed to do that we value human life uh, we're not supposed to you know uh, celebrate death we're not supposed to kill women or children or mutilate babies we can say that all day long but uh, there's no grounding in that belief in Islam like there is in Christianity, which is, is the doctrine of the Imago Dei, that we all are bearers of God's image, and therefore we have inherent value, and we have inherent human rights. There, There's a reason why most Muslim countries are are uh, slow and, in, in a lot of cases, completely unwilling to sign on to uh, UN documents about inherent human rights. It, it's not... A belief that's consistent with Islam. So so there's no Imago Dei, right? There's no other doctrine that supports inherent value of humans. And then on top of that, women are said to be lacking in intellect, in morality, and in common sense. Uh, they exist as fields for men to plow that comes from the Quran, and it's expounded on in the hadiths and commentaries. Uh, they are they are fields for men to plow and then plant their seeds, and that is their value. Muhammad um, taught that he was given the opportunity to look and see hell, and he saw that most of the inhabitants of hell are women. Uh, there are there are many other teachings like this about women in Islam. I have entire talk an entire talk about women, what, what uh, Islam teaches on women. Um, but Muslim uh, Muhammad's favorite wife, um, he married her at six years old, consummated the marriage at nine, and continued to statutory rape her, as we would say. They would say, you know, um, uh, nothing was wrong with that until he died when she was 18 years old. And so, and she said that nobody, she is recorded in the Hadith as saying that no one suffered more than the believing woman. So for her, that was the Muslim women. Um, and she she said, look at so-and-so uh, over here. She has so many bruises on her that her skin is greener than her dress. She was wearing a green dress. So these types of things are found throughout the scriptures. Now, so you might say, okay, well, okay, so very little view of women. Yes. Well, Jews and Christians and polytheists of any other kind are are taught to be the worst of creatures. They are the worst of creatures, according to Islam, uh, while Muslims are the best of creatures. So if you've ever 
uh, made reference to like a pig in front of a Muslim or you've eaten any sort of bacon or pepperoni or anything in front of a Muslim and you see their reaction, they're just horrified. Even the mention of a pig or a drawing of a pig on a wall. Well, as uh, so Jews and Christians and polytheists are said to be the worst of creatures, not pigs. We are. Um, so though pigs aren't even worthy of eating. You know, we, we're worse than that. Um, there are all sorts of commands as well as um, examples from throughout the life of Muhammad that non-Muslims are to be tortured and crucified and have their heads hacked off and all of the things that I mentioned above. That's what the Hadiths record. Um, but, um, you know, uh, one of the ways that Muslim apologists get away with this is they'll say, well, you can read the sources um, in Arabic, but it only works in Arabic. They say the same thing about the Quran. Um, I think it's kind of funny that they they say that about the Hadiths as well, because there's there's just no justification even for that. If it, but um, so so they don't have like you've been reading to us in English. That would right, be sort right. of out of bounds for them. They would say, well, if you really want to understand it, you need to go read it in Arabic. Which yeah. seems a little convenient when it's yeah when you're trying to nail down exactly what it is that they believe. Yeah, and fortunately, there are there there are committed Muslims who want us all to know what the Quran and the Hadith teach, and so there are. I have I have um I have all of the. Uh, trusted Islamic sources, the volumes and volumes of hadith, the the Quran, etc., in uh in Arabic, in uh uh some that were most most of which were uh translated by Muslims themselves who wanted everybody, who want everyone to know, um, look how great this is, look how, you know, awesome this is. Um, don't you want to be a Muslim too? But it's convenient for uh, for Muslim apologists who aren't going to be straightforward with us to say, oh, well, yeah, and you just don't get it because it, it only works in, in Arabic. Sorry, you must, you know, you can't possibly know what it is. As if translation hasn't, like, isn't a thing, hasn't been discovered yet. As Muslims migrate to other countries, you don't hear them coming in and saying, you know, hey, we're going to take over and, and you know, we're going to bring Islam into every house. Um, you don't hear that. You you hear them coming in and saying, we just want to peacefully coexist with you. And we eventually, if we have enough Muslims in our neighborhood, build a mosque and they want to have peaceful worship. And in a way, a kind of the Western system of freedom of religion accommodates that and, and accommodates that that strategy. But as we saw in the New York City clip, it makes me wonder, in Islam, is there an idea, some kind of tipping point of once Muslims are in the majority, that then it becomes more coercive that we're going to make the world Muslim? I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just, I'm just wondering. Yes, yes. So, um, yeah, so there are a few things there. First of all, there is this um, there is this doctrine of deception within Islam 
This is this is actually a central part of Islam. It's known as taqiyah, um, which I believe is the Shia term. The Sunni term, which I've only read about in books, but I don't actually hear the term used very often. I mostly hear taqiyah, um, is the term mudarat. And so, um, but it, it means either way, it means deception for the advance of Islam. Deception was a characteristic of Allah. It was a characteristic of Muhammad, The again, the excellent pattern of conduct. And uh, so, you know, I told you that that most of the translations of the Quran that we have were translated by Muslims. And what you'll see is that um, that passages which um, I don't so I don't speak Arabic, but I'm told by by dozens of Arabic speakers when I ask them and they don't know the context in which I'm asking them this, what does makara mean? What does this phrase mean? They say, oh, it's like it's a deceiver, like a liar, you know, uh, like a schemer, a deceiver. Well, the translations where Allah boasts about being the best of deceivers, which he does in the Quran, um, are generally translated in most most translations that are translated by Muslims. The, it, that phrase is translated as best of planners or best of schemers, but they never choose the, the most accurate phrase, best of deceivers. Although... Uh, you can tell uh, from the minimal context of one of the passages that it looks like it probably does mean schemer in the worst possible sense. But uh, so those are found in Quran 354, um, uh, 799, and uh, 830. Um, if you have a, a version of the Quran translated by anyone who's not a Muslim, you're going to see best of deceivers. Uh, so... Um, but I think something that's helpful is that Allah didn't just brag about his skill at deception, which you kind of need to know a little bit of Arabic or know someone who speaks Arabic to to find that in the Quran. You he he also actually um, uh, demonstrated his skill at deception, and so in the Quran in chapter four, it says that. Uh, the Jews didn't actually kill or crucify Jesus, but rather it was made to appear so. And um, and then the next verse is, um, but but rather Allah took him directly up to heaven. Um, so the obvious implication here is that Allah made Allah is the one who made it appear as if Jesus was the one being crucified on the cross. But he but uh, and as I've asked, I will often ask my Muslim friends that. So you know why did. Uh, why don't you believe that Jesus was crucified? They'll say, oh, it was just made to, the Quran says it. I'm like, um, okay, well, what happened? Why did, why, why is this, this best, like probably single most well-attested historical fact in all of ancient history, um, so well-attested? What happened that, that so many people were convinced Jesus was crucified? And they'll say, oh, uh, yeah, Allah made it appear so. And then they, they'll kind of say that proudly, usually, as if they don't see the problem yet. I'll say, okay, so you're telling me that Allah tricked everyone, including Jesus' own mother, who is recorded to have been there. The Apostle John, who had just spent three years night and day with, with Jesus, he, he tricked these people who were this close to Jesus, uh, uh, only to, to then send down the truth to Muhammad 600 years later. And for what reason? 
um, there's no, there's just no apparent reason. And um, they'll say, well, yes, yes, that's what happened. I'm like, okay, well, do you realize then that Allah is the greatest deceiver ever to live? He is, he is responsible for Christianity. He tricked everyone into believing something that's a lie. Um, Muslims who don't really know, who haven't thought about these things will, will oftentimes just kind of, you know, have, they'll change the subject at that point. Um, just say, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, only God knows. But uh, hopefully, I'm, you know, we're planting a seed for them to think about later. But uh, um, uh, Muhammad and his followers similarly practiced deception uh, as a means to get closer to people in order to rob them, to to torture them, to kill them. So in one of the earliest accounts, after Muhammad uh, left um, uh, Mecca and went to Medina, because he had been rejected, his message had been rejected in Mecca. So he went to Medina. I think it's about 90 miles away or so. Um, in one of the earliest accounts, after he moved there, Muhammad's followers dressed up um, like worshipers and they shaved their heads because the worshipers did that at the, in that place and time. And they would they they uh, did this with the full intention, according to the hadiths, of convincing those around them that they were peaceful worshipers there too, because there was no battle allowed during the peaceful months, during this month of um, of um, the sacred month. So 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 everyone kind of let down their guard, you know, welcomed these peaceful worshipers in with their shaved head and their their proper uh, proper attire and all that. And then as soon as the Muslims gained the trust of the other worshipers, they robbed them, they killed them, and they kidnapped some worshipers. So uh, this was, and this was, you know, near the beginning of Muhammad's um, ministry. So deception in order to kill, uh, um, it continued throughout Muhammad's life. That's just one example. Uh, but he also admonished his followers to do the same. And so... I actually have on my, uh, I, I've recently put on my Facebook page, um, uh, which, I mean, you know, my name there is Laura Zypher Powell, if you're interested, and I'm trying to get it to another place as well. But uh, I put several other uh, passages from the Quran and from the Hadith that that uh, allow for and encourage Muslims to, to be deceitful, to lie, to break their oaths. Um, uh, they show the uh, the most trusted Islamic hadiths show Muhammad uh, again using deception over and over to gain people's trust and to to kill them, uh, to promise people safe passage and then to kill them and then to justify it by saying, "Well, you know, we're at war because you rejected my message and war is deceit." And so this is very this is um, really quite central actually to. Uh, to Islam, it's part of the character of Allah. It's part of the. It was part of the character of the the great, excellent example uh, of um, pattern of conduct in Muhammad, and so it's something that we need to be aware of. Even when when someone is telling you they're a peaceful Muslim, I'm not saying just you know that they're lying. I don't know that. I'm not in a position to know, but I can tell you that they are commanded to lie and deceive. I can tell you that even the Muslims I've been very close to, who I thought I had, I mean, who I do, you know, do and have had great, great relationships with, will 
straight up lie to me like at least once a day. And it, it's just very confusing. It what used to be very confusing to me, but it has uh, infiltrated most Muslim majority cultures such that there's just no shame in just say, you know, just just looking you in the eye, lying to you, even when it's blatantly obvious or is going to become blatantly obvious very soon that, that the person is lying. This is highly confusing to me. Um, and I, I guess, I mean, maybe this explains why during the Iraq war, I have such a vivid memory in 2003 of one of the leaders in the Iraqi government saying, no, there's no, there's no Americans here. There's no army. And then next thing you know, there's pictures on CNN of the American soldiers ripping down the statue of Saddam Hussein like an hour later. But it, if what you're telling me is true, that deception is allowed, yes, and and potentially, maybe I could even say it's stronger is encouraged. Yes, that's what um, I'm about to say. Stronger than yeah. That that that's that's very perplexing to me. But it it explains some things. I don't want to believe that though. I I want to yeah. believe that you're wrong, Laura, because that's yeah. that's that feels very um confusing and then puzzling for me but yeah um how it'll tell you helpful to know yeah yeah and uh, i'll tell you something else um that we see uh with regard to deception in the life of muhammad he had kind of this uh these like three stages of the i guess i'll call it for for humorous purposes evangelistic approach <laughs> but he um uh when he was in the the minority, like the tiny, tiny minority, and most people around him, almost everybody around him had a different belief, um, he uh, shared with them that um, that you know he uh, that he has a message of peace and that they can have their religion and he can have her his, and that he meant no harm and you know that um, we can't we just all get along kind of a thing. Uh, and then when he had enough followers to start conducting uh, smaller type attacks on on groups of, you know, uh, two, three, four, five people in a, a traveling caravan, his then he ordered his men to go attack, do, go do kind of those smaller attacks, which is like a, a kind of a, a defensive jihad, if you will. Um, because those are those are enemies. Those people were enemies of of Allah, right? Because they weren't Muslims. And then when he got enough followers, eventually um, uh, he had he had uh, conquered people in towns all over Arabia. He finally had enough uh, of the population on his side that he then called for all out. Um, subjugation of everybody who's not a Muslim, slaughter of everybody who's not a Muslim, take over the whole place. And he then, um, uh, near the end of his life, was commissioning his followers to do likewise. And so uh, th this is, I, I would consider this an incredibly scary um, kind of a, a uh, teaching or or um mode of operating because how do you ever know if a Muslim is telling the truth? Some are, some are telling the truth, <laughs> but how do you know when their scriptures and their excellent pattern of conduct 
uh, command them and demonstrate for them deceit at all uh, uh, costs when you're in the minority, which they are in the United States currently, obviously. Uh, and then their their commentaries um, expound on that to say you you can take uh, non-Muslims uh, for like you can ally with them or pretend to be their friend if you need them for security purposes, but just make sure that you're always um, hating them in your heart. So uh, yes, yeah, so it's a very you know very scary uh, demonic religion. Be. Which raises questions about whether or not we could ever truly be co-belligerent with them and rally around common causes such as problems in with woke ideologies in our public schools or anything of that nature, because it would be really hard to establish trust and right. to to create a true coalition. That raises all kinds of questions for me. Let's uh, make sure to tell people about your class at Women in Apologetics, as well as your podcast and where they can follow your work. Yeah, great. So uh, if you go to, if you want to learn more about Islam, I have, um, I mean, you can follow me on on Facebook at Laura Zifer Powell, Z-I-F-E-R. Uh, if you'd like to learn a lot more about Islam and you'd like to learn it now, <laughs> uh, I created a 20-lesson course called Islam Foundations that's available at uh, uh, womeninapologetics.com. I believe it's still on the homepage, but it uh, shouldn't be too hard to find on that website. Uh, my website is anaffairwithreason.com, and you can listen to my podcast called The Night and Rose Show, K-N-I-G-H-T, Night and Rose Show, uh, anywhere you get podcasts. Very good. And I do want to encourage people to go check out and follow Laura's work there. And um, I know that my husband, Bob, helped you put together the videos on the Islam course. And so go check out Laura's podcast and all of that. Thank you so much for doing this and bringing your knowledge to my channel and just adding value and helping us understand some of these things because, uh, boy, it's a cultural distance. It's a religious difference. And some of us are really struggling. Thank you so much, Laura. Well, I hope you found that helpful. And I know that I did. And boy, there's some of it is challenging. Islam is a complex religion. Maybe it only seems complex to me because I'm an outsider. Maybe you're an outsider, too. But I want to encourage you to continue to investigate you can watch this back. Probably you might need to watch it again to really uh, get all of this great information. You can also check out our conversation with Laura from a couple of years ago, kind of some basics of Islam, and just continue to resource yourself. Above all, if you don't know what else to do, is pray. Pray for the Muslims in your life. Pray that the Holy Spirit will send harvest workers across their path and be working in their hearts to begin to plant seeds of doubt about their faith so that they might turn to Jesus and um, that there would be somebody who would really bring the proclamation of the true good news to them. There is revival happening right now in the Middle East. I keep hearing reports that the church in Iran, for example, is the fastest growing church in the world. Think about what God can do, even in the midst of difficulty, adversity, and persecution. 
The church in Iran is a church without seminaries. It, it has no buildings. It, it can't be out in public. But yet God is on the move. So don't discount what God is already up to in the lives of many people who live in the Middle East. There are Christian brothers and sisters who live there. They need our prayers and they need our support. So continue to pray, continue to educate yourself, and I will do my best to continue to bring content to you. Make sure to share this with a friend if you found it helpful. Thank you so much. God bless and may God have mercy on us all. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.